Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy, with our guest today, Professor Anthony Colangelo from Southern Methodist University. The Common Bridge, of course, is featured on Substack. Please join us for fiercely nonpartisan discussion and policy-oriented talk at Richard Helpy at Substack, of course, on your podcast outlets and YouTube TV. For almost 50 years, the law of the land established by the Supreme Court in a decision known as Roe versus Wade superseded state-level laws regarding abortion. And during this time, women have come to expect access to abortion services, while those opposed to favored denial of such access. Now, at the outset of this episode, I want to be real clear. We are not going to solve the abortion debate, nor frankly as men, do we have the understanding necessary to opine knowledgeably on the topic itself. However, there have been some recent court cases and new laws that are bringing this matter to the fore, and so the Common Bridge will attempt to shed a little light on at least one of those new laws, specifically Texas Senate Bill 8, captioned the Texas Heartbeat Bill. So we welcome to the Common Bridge, Professor Anthony Colangelo from the Robert G. Story Distinguished Fellow and Professor of Law at Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law. Professor Colangelo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. So I thought what I might do is just kind of run through the law itself. You know, I've written a, uh, a short piece when it first came out that got downloaded something like 700 times in a month, detailing the law and exploring different ways of challenging it. So it's a quite exceptional law. We've not seen anything like it before. So what I want to do is kind of go through the law itself and explain why it's so exceptional and why, to plagiarize myself, it has hypnotized so many attorneys, figuring kind of left them scratching their heads at, well, you know, what is this? How can we challenge it? Is there a way? And uh, basically... To that point, most of our audience, they're not attorneys. And I think your piece was written for a law journal. And I read it, you know, sometimes when I read those, I kind of feel like my dog, you know, I'm reading along, okay, I recognize that word or recognize that. But just so that our audience knows you a little bit before we dive into that, a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and get your legal education and what kind of career experience have you had? Sure. So I grew up in New York. I went to law school at Northwestern where I graduated number one in my class Fantastic. and uh, clerked on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers New York, Connecticut and Vermont. I worked at a law firm. Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton in their New York and Rome offices, um, did some international arbitration there, and taught at Columbia University in New York for a few years where I got my master's and my PhD, and after that came down to, to SMU. I'm actually a, uh, an expert in procedure and international law and international human rights and counterterrorism. I also partner with a nuclear nonproliferation organization. And I think one of the things that allowed me to bring a new perspective to this law is that what I do here, and I'll explain it to you in a minute, 
is I bring in the field of something called conflict of laws, which is something that is not at all on the radar of a constitutional law uh, scholar or a constitutional lawyer, to distinguish between different types of law, in particular civil laws, which are laws between uh, two private parties, and penal laws, where the state and the the private party is an adversary. And ultimately what I'm going to say, what I'm going to show, is that this Texas law looks a lot more like a penal law than it does a civil law. While nominally we have two private parties, one of the parties is acting as a surrogate or deputized agent for the state. And so that is going to be key because in order to vindicate your constitutional rights, you need to have something called state action. It's got to be the state taking away your right. If it's a private party taking away your right, then you have all sorts of other causes of action like tort law, you know, mm-hmm. things like negligence, negligent infliction of emotional distress, wrongful death. These are all sort of civil causes of action. But the Constitution doesn't care about that. The Constitution cares about when it's the state doing it. And I think that's a good segue into the law itself, unless you have any other questions. Yeah, it is. So the the, the paper that you authored is called Suing Texas State Senate Bill Under Federal Law for Violations of Constitutional Rights. We will publish this paper and our link to it at richardhelpy.com and at richardhelpy at Substack. You wrote it for the SMU Law Review Forum this past September. Is this paper written for lawyers or is it written for the general population? It's a lot more colloquial. You know, my writing in general tends to be colloquial, and this one especially so. I don't think, I've had a lot of people who have read it who are not lawyers and who have understood it quite easily. I think it's it's a short read. I mean, basically what I did is the state came out with this law. I wrote the paper. I gave it to the SMU Law Review, and I said, Will you print it? And they said, yes. <laughs> it was fascinating because when, when you read about this Texas law, which effectively bans abortion upon detection of fetal cardiac activity, but it allows almost anyone to sue abortion providers. They're not even a party. Like I know that there's a concept of standing that in order for me to bring a lawsuit against someone, I have to have standing, you know, a, a dog in the fight, so to speak. Right. So these unique characteristics like deputation of citizenry kind of sounds kind of deceptive. See if you can take us from A to Z and I'll interject when I have questions because it just sounds to me like taken to an extreme case, I could be standing on a sidewalk, witness a car accident and decide I'm going to sue who I think's at fault, even though I had nothing to do with the car wreck. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not far from the truth. I mean, so, you know, just to To outline the law, as you said, I mean, it gives any private party, anybody, right, anybody, the right to sue anyone who aids and abets an abortion during this fetal heartbeat period, which could be before the the woman even knows she's pregnant, right, and recover no less than $10,000. The law is very deceptive. And so in the little article, and again, this is, it's very short, it's like three pages. In the little article, I subdivide the deceptive devices, as I call them, into three main ways or three main devices. And the first is that the Texas law, as alluded to earlier, attempts to take, quote unquote, the state out of the picture. So it's not the state that is depriving you of the right. It is the private individual. It is the private party suing. And and that is crucially important 
because typically in order to vindicate your constitutional rights under the primary statute, which here would be section 1983, that's the vindication of constitutional rights under federal law, you need to have what's called state action. So let, let me make sure I, I understand that as a, as a layperson. So if the state of Texas said, we're going to ban all abortions when we can detect a heartbeat, which would be contrary to the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, because it would require a state action to enforce, not allowed to do that. Not allowed to do that. Okay. So they said, okay, we're gonna, we've got a workaround. So explain to tell us how this workaround works. Well, I mean, the workaround is actually very, very, very clever. It's taking the state out of the picture, and it's putting that enforcement mechanism in the hands of private individuals. Okay. So it's saying, we, the state, are not doing anything, but we're authorizing you, private individuals, to sue on our behalf, more or less. And it's that move that takes the state out of the picture. There's also what is very deceptive here is you can't actually sue the woman. The statute prohibits suing the woman prohibits it, explicitly prohibits it. It says you can only go after those who aid and abet her. And why is this clever? Well, it's clever because it's her right. Oh. Right? It's her yes, right. I mean, yeah. You know, there's another another feature of this law that's kind of mind-boggling. Um, so you're the Uber driver. You drive her to the abortion clinic. Somebody sues you for aiding and abetting an abortion. And you say, hey, wait a minute. What I did was perfectly consistent with the Constitution. And they say, well, you don't have a constitutional right. You're just the Uber driver. Yeah, but I didn't know she was going there for an abortion as the Uber driver. But, I, but now I'm, I've got a civil penalty. That's a good question of whether there's got to be mens rea here, right? Whether there's got to be the state of mind, whether she tells him. But assume, let's assume she says. Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. At Substack.com, search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. Can, okay. Well, she's going to say, can you, can you drive me to the abortion clinic, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's another... Not a normal conversation with an Uber driver, I would imagine. I don't know. Look, hey, people share a lot in those in those cars. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's me too. <laughs> and the third aspect of this is that the actor who's depriving the party of a constitutional right must be acting under the color of law. Now, that's a legal term of art, under the color of law. And what that means is you must be acting in some official capacity. And basically, the test here for the Supreme Court is that private parties, so here we would say the state law plaintiff, private parties can actually become state actors, which is what we want in order to sue them, right? Mm -hmm. They can become state actors where their conduct is, and I want to just quote here, fairly attributed to the state. So if you have a private party whose conduct is fairly attributed to the state, then you can sue that private party as acting under the color of law or acting in an official capacity. None of this gets us super far here. I mean, we still have what looks like a, pl a private plaintiff suing another private plaintiff for a private harm. Let me just make sure, because this just sounds, I, I don't know who came up with this, but 
I'm trying to imagine two people. One person is standing on a street corner in front of a clinic that provides abortions. Another is the Uber driver. The Uber driver pulls up, may or may not know what the his passenger is going to do. Passenger goes in to get a, a, an abortion procedure. The person on the street can't do anything about the woman going in because she has a right. The state of Texas can't do anything. The state of Texas can't take an action because it would go against the Supreme Court. But somehow, the guy that's standing outside has nothing to do with this, can sue the Uber driver and get and make the Uber driver pay $10,000 and the plaintiff's court costs. I don't have an intelligent question after that, Professor. I just can't get this. I just, just would conjure some criminal law for a second and say that in order for there to be aiding and abetting liability, there's probably got to be some knowledge on the part of the driver. So just say it's her friend, right? Mm-hmm. It's her friend. So here is... What What about the the, the physicians and the clinicians staffing the, the clinic? Are they liable? Oh, yeah. They're on the hook. They're oh, they're on on, the hook. Okay. So that would be aiding and abetting then. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. Okay. For sure. Basically, my argument is... You know, okay, this is all very labyrinthine and full of all of these clever devices, but let's take a step back here for a second and acknowledge the ridiculousness of this law. It's not like any other law that we've seen. It's no ordinary law, right? We don't have one civil party who's or private party who's harmed suing another private party. In fact, there's no harm here. Right. Right? There's no harm. When you bring in another field of law that's been in existence since the founding of this country called conflict of laws, courts have had to distinguish between, and this is going back to Chief Justice Marshall, courts have had to distinguish between different types of law. And they said, well, yes, there's civil law, which is when a private party sues another private party, but there's also penal law. And the paradigmatic example of a penal law would, of course, be a criminal law. Uh, But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. So here are my quotes for what a penal law is, depending on Supreme Court precedent, okay? So a penal law depends on whether its purpose is to punish an offense against the public justice of the state or to afford a private remedy to a person injured by the wrongful act. So again, to reiterate, the Texas law requires no injury. According to the Supreme Court, to afford a private remedy to a person injured by the wrongful act. So this does not look like a civil law. There's no harm to the individual. It looks more like penal law. And to put it in the words of a very, very famous justice, Justice Cardozo, he said, a statute is penal when it awards a penalty to the state or to a public officer in its behalf and here's the money language, or to a member of the public suing in the interest of the whole community to redress a public wrong. The purpose must be not reparation to one aggrieved, but vindication of the public justice. Again, to reiterate, the Texas law requires no injury and thus no reparation to one aggrieved. This is a penal law, clear and simple. Who enforces penal law? The prosecutors. Are they acting in an official capacity? Yes. When prosecutors enforce a penal law, 
they are acting in an official capacity. Voila, we have state action. And so I think the conclusion is this is not like this is a unique law and it's a unique law because it is effectively deputizing private individuals as state prosecutors under the penal public penal law exception. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me if I'm following the flow. The state of Texas has decided it wants to severely restrict access to abortion. They know that they could not win that in the court because of Roe versus Wade and the 50-year precedent that's established. So they could not pass legislation that way. So they passed this Senate Bill 8 to deputize citizens to sue the abortion physicians and clinicians and such to basically make it impossible for them to continue, but not call it a state action. Right. Wow. And, you know, when I think about this, it got the, the appeals to the Fifth Circuit Court didn't strike the law down. And I guess now it's wending its way through the federal appeal system. Yeah. Any speculation on what grounds this might be heard of? Because I can think of if this law stands, what could be done with other laws in other jurisdictions. Oh, it would be it would be crazy. I mean, they could all pass laws like this. And I just wanted to say one thing I had mentioned earlier that the Texas state law actually prohibits going after the woman who's getting the abortion. Mm-hmm. So my research showed that under federal law, courts have held that, and I quote, though generally speaking, a constitutional right is a personal right of individuals. This is only a rule of practice which will not be followed where the identity of interest between the party asserting the right and the party in whose favor the right directly exists is sufficiently close. So basically, if you're the woman's friend and you drive her to the, to the clinic and you're getting sued for aiding and abetting her abortion, you would have the right. It's sufficiently close to her right that you would have the right to sue. I think that it would be a free-for-all. I mean, I think states could start doing this right and left. I know that some of the strategy has been to say that, to go after the, the clerks and say that in these lawsuits, it's the clerks that by simply putting the case on the docket are exercising state action, and therefore you would sue the clerks. I mean, I think this is a very straightforward way of getting at them. And I think it is a huge deterrent to bringing these types of suits, because not only is it, you know, coming up with a way for you to prevail as the aider and a better, but it's coming up with a way for you to actually get damages against somebody who sues you under state law. And let's just be clear, under the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, federal law will always trump state law. Right. And there's no question that Section 1983 of the U.S. Code is constitutionally valid federal law that would trump the state law here. So when you think about the underlying issue that, you know, there was a thing called a viability standard and, you know, it's moving over time with medical advances. And that's, you know, some of the debate about the laws and the restrictions and permissions themselves and, you know, what the medical capability or the legal framework is. But, you know, to a layperson, Professor what would be the right way to go about it if a state said that because conditions have changed since 1973, what would be the way if they wanted to take a state action that would be in conflict with Roe versus Wade? Is there a pathway to do that legislatively or through the courts? Besides just enacting a law that violates Roe versus Wade or? They clearly wanted to 
navigate around Roe versus Wade. Right. Okay. And so they came up with the, this mechanism in Senate Bill 8, and I'm just astonished with the machinations that it took to get there. And then the counterstrike about the clerks being able to sue the, the plaintiffs and such. But would there be an a, appropriate way to resolve this? I mean, there's this leave Roe versus Wade in place. That's one thing. There is, of course, U.S. congressional action, which they can't even agree on. <laughs> Don't, let's not get started there. Uh, that if, if I was a governor of the state of Texas and I said we wanted to have a, a viability determined at the first heartbeat, Right. And this law, Senate Bill 8, is rejected. What would the options be for that governor or that state legislature? I think that's a great question. And I think that's precisely the the question that Texas legislature was grappling with. You know, you have a clear precedent, doesn't allow you to go after the woman for getting an abortion up until viability. So you've got to get creative and start thinking about, well, how can we how can we effectively punish? Because this is punitive. Again, Absolutely, let's be clear, yeah. it's punitive. How can we punish abortions in the state of Texas? Well, I have an idea. Let's go after not the woman, but the people who help her. Mm-hmm. And if we go after the people who help her, what we're effectively going to do is we're going to deter abortions. That's going to be the practical consequence of our action. And I think that's precisely what this, what this bill was designed to accomplish. It's very creative. I mean, make no mistake. Uh, a lot of thought went into this. Explicitly prohibiting suit against her. I mean, you know, people were just like, what, what, (laughs) like, you know, taking, trying to take the state completely out of the picture. So you couldn't have a constitutional challenge. I mean, they basically tried to make this a state law issue. They tried to take it out of the realm of Roe versus Wade by making it a state law issue. And I think what I'm trying to show is that no, actually your state law mechanism runs afoul of the Constitution, not only does it run afoul of the Constitution in the sense that you're going to lose, it runs afoul of the Constitution in the sense that you're going to lose and be liable for money. So this will get appealed to a federal court and ultimately, potentially, to the Supreme Court to rule on whether these legal maneuvers are permissible. You know, I just think about it. I know that California's floated the idea of a similar structure for gun ownership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I could see this kind of mechanism, you know, really perverting all the great protections that we have in our Constitution and and the rule of law that we've enjoyed for so long. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you being on. We're, of course, going to have your paper on our website. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you'd like to let our listeners and viewers know about? You know, my only hope through all of this is that the public discussion of these issues is not so vitriolic. I mean, unfortunately, I think we've descended into a discourse of toxic and ugly mudslinging. We've gotten to the point where each side tries to view the question as one of absolute rights. So, you know, people on the side of the right to life will say, well, we have this absolute right to life, and not only does it gobble up the right to privacy, but the right to privacy doesn't even exist. You know, we have this absolute right to life that that runs roughshod over everything else, and there, by the way, there's no right to privacy because it doesn't textually exist in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And then we have those on the left who say, well, we have a right to privacy, 
that the Supreme Court has found in the 14th Amendment due process clause and fetuses are not constitutionally cognizable people. So not only does the right to privacy overrun the rights of the fetus, the fetus just isn't a constitutionally cognizable person. So you see how this debate has gone from, you know, weighing, okay, a right to life and a right to privacy to our right just wins because there is no other right, right? Um, It's just completely lopsided. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I would like to see personally is a more nuanced and sophisticated analysis that recognizes the existence of both rights. And one interesting thing about our constitution as opposed to other constitutions is we don't have a hierarchy of rights. So other constitutions, for example, the German constitution has a hierarchy of rights. And at the top of that hierarchy is human dignity. And if any other right comes into conflict with human dignity, human dignity wins. And our constitution doesn't work that way. It, it, it contemplates trade-offs among rights. So your right to free speech runs out of steam when it comes up against inciting a violent mob to take action. There is a trade-off there. And I think that that is the much better, more fruitful, respectful way of dealing with something like abortion, that we're willing to accept, look, there are there are rights on both sides of these of this issue. They're important. They stand for valid interests. And let's be more sophisticated and nuanced about balancing those rights. That's the thing I would like to leave with from my own personal perspective as a lawyer and as a law professor. But beyond that, no, I don't have anything else I would like to say. Professor Colangelo, that was a beautiful articulation of what we've been doing on the Common Bridge now in our third season. It was because People were polarized over here. People were polarized over there. You know, we still don't have an answer for healthcare, guns, immigration, income equality, infrastructure, maybe getting fixed right now because of those things that we, we've got to be able to see each other as people with a valid points of view and find that, that commonality, uh, again, with our humanity and our country preeminent. And your discussion today has really helped power that along. This has been a terrific conversation. We have been talking with Professor Anthony Colangelo of Southern Methodist University Law School, a fascinating discussion about Texas Senate Bill 8. Please read his paper at Substack and at richardhelpy.com. We look forward to you joining the conversation on Substack, and we look forward to our continued dialogue about the issues of the day and the policies to best address them. This is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved by Richard